When you listen to the Rolling Stones singing Midnight Rambler, you ever stop to think about the lyrics? Or the Beatles, Run For Your Life? What about gangster rap? Do the Stones and the Beatles get a pass on their lyrics because they're British? Okay, what about music that takes the sounds of one culture and presents it maybe in a new way? Is that okay? Welcome to Trinity University's Learning Together podcast series, a part of the university's lifelong learning initiative designed especially for alumni. I'm Nathan Cohn, class of 1995, your host. I work at Texas Public Radio in San Antonio, where we sometimes characterize what NPR does as the nation's biggest continuing education course. And one of the things I do at Texas Public Radio is interact with music a lot as a listener, as a producer, as a host, and occasionally in my itty-bitty bit of free time as a performer myself. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Andrew Kania, a professor in the philosophy department at Trinity who is a musician and arranger himself. We'll be talking about the philosophy and ethics of music from the perspective of composers, performers, and listeners. Dr. Kania is presently at work on a book about the subject. I enjoyed this conversation a lot. I think you will, too. And if you have any feedback, I'd love to hear it. After all, we're two white guys talking about cultural appropriation, among other things. So tweet me anytime at TPR Cinema. Now, enjoy the show. Andrew Kania, it's good to have you here in the studios, and thanks for talking to me about this subject. I'm really excited to hear from you today. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you about it, so thanks for agreeing to do it. All right. So I, I want to go back to uh, back when I was a student at Trinity University, first of all, mm-hmm. and I was not a music minor or music major, but I took uh, two or three music courses here at Trinity. Timothy Kramer was the composer in residence here at Trinity, uh-huh. a professor that I took a couple of classes from, and I took composition from him. Huh. And I remember on the very first day of class, he came in and there was a music stand in one corner of the room and we're all sitting there in our chairs and he comes over, he, he stands up and he knocks over the music stand and he goes, how did you like my piece? <laughs> so, I mean, my first uh, thing that I wanted to get into it with you on is um, why did we create music and what defines music? His point was that literally anything can define music if you put the right framework around it. But uh-huh. why do we do that? Yeah, well, it's a good question. Um, and I mean, in fact, those are those are two questions, right? What is music and um, why do we do it? Which is, in a sense, the second one is the question about the value of music. Um, and so that's a huge one. Uh, so I'm writing this book at the moment. It's a contemporary introduction to the philosophy of music. And in a way, the first half of the book is trying to grapple with that question of what the value of music is. So why do we make music? And I guess there have been two um, two most popular answers in the kind of theoretical or philosophical um, literature, one of which is centered around kind of emotions. So music has some really important connection to emotions. Uh, and the other of which is focused around um more abstract musical features or what some people might call more purely musical features. So you might think of melody, uh, rhythm, harmony, those sorts of um, features. And in the classical music world, which has been the focus of a lot of philosophy of music and musicology, though that's changing a little bit now, um, the focus has been a lot on form, Uh, especially with um, instrumental classical music. So the way that melodies and harmonies and rhythms contribute to some kind of larger structure. Um, one of the difficulties with, with talking about this issue with music, especially uh, today, especially taking um, popular music into account, is that most people's experience with music 
and this is probably true over the history of, of humanity, uh, is with song, not with pure instrumental music. Mm -hmm. So this goes to the other sort of question of, of what is music. Um, when people think of music, they often think of song. And when you think about the values of song, you're thinking not just about the value that uh, the musical aspect of song has, but also the value that the words have, right? Because they're sort of crucial. Um, so one of the challenges with thinking about this topic is kind of thinking, well, how much of what I'm talking about when I think about why I like a great song is to do with the words, how much is to do with the music, and how much is to do with the combination of those things. Um, so one of the challenges in the book and one of the challenges in general talking about the issue is trying to focus on the music. I mean, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to be said about the words, but in a sense, you know, in, in my professional life, it's like, okay, well, that's when I'm doing philosophy of literature and those are, that's a whole nother range of questions. Um, so it's really when you think about the, the purely musical aspects, just those musical sounds and asking what, what the value of those is. And so again, one of the answers is emotions. Another answer is something like more purely musical features like the shapes and harmonies and, and rhythms. You got, you've talked, you've written about the way music creates emotions by, through its combination of words and sounds before I was reading, uh, one of your articles about, um, uh, a song where the lyrics are very gloomy. The music is combination of gloominess with it. Um, but either of by themselves may not necessarily create that effect, but together they have this effect of creating a gloomy mood. Um, yeah. Why is that? Well, there are a lot of different answers to that question. Um, so again, one of the, um, one of the um, points that I think that example is helpful for illustrating is that you know, a lot of people think, well, why is the song gloomy? Well, it's because the, the words are about, you know, kind of death and, and unhappiness and destruction. But of course, if you put those words to a kind of upbeat tune, you're going to get a very weird song, right? And it's not going to be gloomy. It might still be kind of unsettling because you know the music doesn't really sort of match emotionally, and that might be a really great thing. Um, so it's not like the the words and the music have to kind of match emotionally, but it does seem clear from those sorts of um, examples that the music itself has a kind of emotional character. How did that even happen? Because most people associate, for example, minor keys as sad, Right. <laughs> and at some point in the history of music that happened, I mean, um, you know, because music goes back thousands and thousands of years. Right. And when did it become associated where this sound of music is the sad sound? Right. Well, um, and that happens even without words, because you can listen yeah. to Chopin that's in a minor key and you think, oh, my gosh, how, how, how sad. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it seems like there must be kind of all sorts of um um, specific answers to those questions with all sorts of musical traditions that, that in a sense, I guess, musicologists or music historians are, are, are better placed to answer. Uh, but for instance, if you're familiar with, with Western music, which is the music I'm most familiar with, the minor key as being somehow emotionally darker compared to kind of major keys is a classic example. And it looks like that happened, you know, sometime in the relatively recent history of, of Western music, you know, within the last 500 years. Um, um, Peter Kivy, uh, uh, a well-known philosopher of music who's written a lot on this topic, um, suggests that um, operas couldn't end in a minor key because, uh, it, it, say, 300 years ago, not just because they didn't like sad endings, but because the minor chord still sounded like an unresolved harmony to them. And so you couldn't have 
uh, an opera ending in a minor key, not because of its kind of emotional content, but because that emotional content was connected to a kind of musical um, incompleteness. Uh, so there are those, all of the answers to that sort of question, I think, are kind of conventional, and they're going to be kind of, um, again, answers that, that musicologists can have the details of. In a sense, the more interesting philosophical question is, um, how do you explain the emotional content of music that isn't um, explained in terms of those sorts of conventions? Because obviously there's a, there's a bunch of conventionality going on. If you listen to, at least if I listen to Bal Balinese gamelan music, I know it's filled with emotion because I know a little bit about the music, but I don't understand the music. Um, I'm not in that musical culture. And so I can't tell which emotions it has. So there's obviously a lot of convention going on there. But it also seems like convention can't, can't be the whole answer to that. It, it seems it seems implausible that really slow, low music could have been happy if kind of the history of music had gone differently. It seems like there's some kind of deeper connection there between those kinds of musical sounds and emotions. So one popular theory that Peter Kivy, um, who I've already mentioned, and Stephen Davies uh, defend is this sometimes called the resemblance or contour account of musical expression. And that's basically the idea that... Uh, slow, low music uh, sounds sad to us because we recognize a resemblance between it and some aspect of typical um, human expressions of sadness, right? When so we're we, sad, we move slow, right. we stay we in droop. bed, yeah. we are on the ground. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. We don't jump around, we jump around when we're joyful, right? And so what happens when you make music that jumps around? Well, it sounds more joyful, you know, other things being equal. So that's been a kind of... Um, popular theory uh some people say that's not kind of enough to explain even that part of, of musical expression because it seems like well you know lo lots of things kind of move around in certain ways but we don't think that um you know we don't think that kind of low slow music um is like um i don't know a bucket of water even though a bucket of water is kind of slow and doesn't move very much, might be down on the ground. <laughs> it seems like, well, why do, why do we do that? Uh, why do we think the music's kind of sad and not, you know, bucket of water-like? So some people, um, like Jared Levinson is a famous proponent of this, Jennifer Robinson is another, think that that resemblance account, there might be something to it, but it has to be supplemented by something to do with imagination. Like we imagine, uh, we don't just kind of perceive a resemblance between the music's movement and the movement of a of a sad person say we rather have to imagine that the music in a sense is a person not like a human being with a body but we somehow imagine that the music itself is expressing its emotions and the resemblance kind of keys us to which emotions that is but we we're actually thinking of the music as a person literally expressing themselves or could it be also also when you mentioned the bucket of water it made me think of okay let's think of Debussy's La Mer which is mm -hmm, about the sea, mm -hmm. right? The play of wind and water on the sea and all these different aspects of the sea. So right. the music is about water. It's about the sea. Uh -huh. But nevertheless, we have an emotion about it. And that emotion comes to us from our experiences of us and the sea too. How do I feel about the sea? Uh -huh. How do I feel uh -huh. about that bucket of water? And so even though the music may resemble the bucket of water or it may resemble the Atlantic Ocean, I have already emotions that are attached to that bucket of water or the Atlantic Ocean. And therefore the music through its go-between of it sounding like an inanimate object, I'm able to bring emotion to it in that regard as well. Yeah, sure, and that that goes back, I think, to the um, to the the example you started with of the kind of the gloomy song. So, um, 
most theorists, there's some disagreement about this, but but most theorists think that that music can't by itself express the full range of emotions because some emotions require, for instance, um, intentional objects. Um, if you're if you're loving, you have to love something. There has to be an object of your love, and music by itself can't represent. Um, those objects typically, right? It can't re- represent a particular person who's the object of your love. It can't represent by itself the sea. But as soon as you call the piece La Mer, yeah. right, and then, then you've got all this kind of process and movement, obviously, yeah, people are going to kind of think of it as the movement of water and, and the sea. And then, of course, there are these kind of personal connotations um, that you were talking about. Uh, and then it, this is the the very difficult thing I think to talk about how those elements kind of come together. So, in, in fact, one of the one of the most uh, obvious examples I think is film music. S- similarly, you have a lot of kind of orchestral and, in a sense, the um, the um, legacy of romantic uh, orchestral pure music is 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 seen in contemporary popular music the most in film scores. Right, they're very kind of classical and large and romantic often, and they're very expressive. But typically, that expression is somewhat general, and it's given specificity by the actions and dialogue and images of the characters in the film. Right, so where where the music might have been just kind of generally sad, suddenly it becomes the the sadness of you know Harry Potter or you know whoever's mm-hmm. on screen or King Kong, um, and their particular facial expressions and what's been going on in the film helps kind of shape that general sadness of the music into that particular gloom or depression or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, And music in films also is interesting because often it's just underscoring. And so there's not really, I mean, unless you have a big theme like John Williams writing Uh for Star uh Wars or Raiders of the Lost Ark or Indiana Jones, you know, um, there's a lot of underscoring, which is just, we need to write music that's going to sound sad or going to be, scary sounding Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. going to be up. And so the composer is working in order to try and match those emotions on the screen. Yeah, that's right. Um, And maybe even, so, so this is another kind of fundamental um, distinction. I think we'd think about emotion and music. Um, Maybe they're sometimes not trying to match the, the emotion on screen, but rather trying to uh, elicit some emotional response in the listener. So I think a lot of people, when they start to think about emotions in music, they sort of think, well, you know, sad music, that, that's music that makes you sad. Um, now, maybe it's true that sad music makes you sad, but it's not clear that what makes it sad music is the fact that it makes you sad. For instance, if you're a resemblance theorist, do you think it's something about the shape of the music and its resemblance to the typical behaviors of sad people that make the music sad? And then it's a further question whether in fact that music makes you sad. Because often we have different emotional responses to the the object we're emoting about than that object itself has, right? Sometimes we can pity a sad person. Um, and so, um, for instance, the, the, the horror movie uh, music example you just gave, the underscoring, it might be kind of trying to make us uneasy, mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily expressing unease. Maybe it's kind of threatening, menacing music, and thus it's making us not threatening or menacing, but rather uneasy. And so our response is different. The emotional response we're feeling is different from the emotion that's being expressed in the music. And that, of course, has a bunch of other functions that you were talking about in film. Hello, this is Danny Anderson, president of Trinity University. Thank you for listening to the Learning Together podcast series brought to you by Trinity's Office of Alumni Relations and Development and produced here on campus by our friends at KRTU 
91.7 FM. We're so glad you tuned in today, and we appreciate your continued support of lifelong learning at Trinity University. Welcome back to the Learning Together podcast from Trinity University. I'm Nathan Cohn. Let's return to my conversation with Dr. Andrew Kania on the philosophy of music. That leads me into kind of like where I, I want to move next, which is uh, the idea of music being able to elicit emotions in us and also using lyrics and something that I, I think you reference uh, in uh, what you're going to be writing about in as one another aspect of, of your upcoming studies and, and book here is music's ability to convey emotion and um I guess, uh, you know, let's let's go back into the, the 1980s right here with the PMRC. And um, can music actually be dangerous? Can it can it can it do things to us that uh, or is it, you know, that's that eternal art versus uh, life debate? Right, right. Yeah. So that goes all the way back in the Western tradition to Plato. Right. He sure. That music was extremely dangerous and need to be tight, tightly controlled. Um I guess I'm fairly skeptical about about these claims that music can kind of um, at least has kind of the simple effects that a lot of people think um, on us. Uh, and I also think, again, that's a kind of question that's t tightly connected to um, the lyrics. Right. So a lot of the kind of um, worry in the 80s was not about the kind of musical content of the songs, but the lyrical content. Right. Um, Judas Priest is going to make my kid be a Satanist. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you see the same kind of thing about, about video games today and the same kinds of questions come up about kind of direct causal connections. I think it's very difficult to establish those those kinds of direct causal connections. Rap music right. creates violence right. against women. Right, right. So millions of people are listening to this music. Um, clearly they're not all turning into, into serial killers. But of course there might be a kind of more general um, uh, kind of effect um, on society through this it might be sort of slightly changing people's characters. So to some extent, again, I feel like those questions are questions for um, uh, sociologists or psychologists because philosophers are more interested in kind of the conceptual underpinnings of, of, of those sorts of things rather than the kind of causal effects. Um, but again, I think there are kind of different questions that, that are important to try and answer before turning to those those causal questions i mean so one is just like you know can a song in itself be morally bad so a lot of people think well a song you know like a film or a video game is just a kind of a fiction so so how could it be uh, morally bad it's just all kind of made up we're just kind of pretending um but i think there are reasonable arguments that you know by its expression of an attitude towards a certain kind of thing. I mean, I do think there's misogynist um, music and I don't think it's, you know, just rap. One of my favorite examples actually is um, the Beatles um, run for, run your, for life, your life. Yeah. Right. Which or is midnight kind of rambler by the stones. Very, right. Right. Yeah. So creepy misogynist um, stuff. And it seems to me it's creepy and misogynist because there's a kind of narratorial voice in that song that's expressing, um, morally offensive um, views <laughs> about women in that case. Uh, and it's doing it in a, in a way that's endorsing those views. I mean, run for your life is kind of an, almost an upbeat country rock kind of a song. Um, it's, it's by no means kind of expressing these views and kind of trying to present them ironically or pre present them as a, as an object of criticism. And of course, Lennon, um, I think um, expressed regret that that song was, was ever made because he, uh, he struggled with those sorts of issues himself. 
Or you get the police with every breath you take where everybody loves that song and doesn't realize by listening to the lyrics of it that, oh, gosh, that's kind of a stalkery type. Right. <laughs> right. Song. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, there's 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 that issue kind of, you know, the moral um, content of the songs. We might say those songs are morally flawed. But then there's another issue um, that philosophers have been writing about with respect to all sorts of um, kinds of art, which is whether those moral criticisms are really artistic criticisms. Uh, so, you know, the idea is, okay, so we might say that's a kind of morally offensive song, but can we still say, but it's a really good song? Um, it's a really good song as a you know, work of art or piece of music, even though it's, it's morally offensive. Uh, and there's been uh, a lot of resistance to that claim. Some people call that sort of autonomy, right? The, 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 the autonomous nature of art, it's, it's value is totally separate from its moral value. And, um, I think one of the most interesting arguments about about that sort of relationship is is one um, that uh, Beres Gort actually is is a philosopher who's put it forward most clearly. I think he calls it the merited response argument, and the idea is well, to succeed as an artwork, um, any kind of art is trying to get some sort of response out of the viewer, whether it's an experience of beauty for an abstract painting or some kind of engagement with the story and the characters. And so, if you've got a song like run for your life because of its endorsement of that kind of misogynist view it seems like that's coming from the narrator and it's kind of an upbeat song and so you're supposed to sort of feel like yeah yeah i can get into this you're supposed to want to kind of sing along with the song aaron smuts has a really interesting um piece about the ethics of singing along to to morally questionable songs uh and it seems like beris gort's basic idea is well the response that run for your life is trying to get out of the listener is an inappropriate response, a morally inappropriate response. It's unmerited, he says, you know, unwarranted, not justified. And that means it's an artistic failing because it's trying to get a response out of listeners that um, it shouldn't get, as it were, for moral reasons. And so it's going to fail as an artwork. But could you say that any pop music that expresses a misogynistic or a racist or a violent view that because pop music by its nature makes you want to sing along with it. Anyone right. would be a failure in that regard. I mean, like what, again, I, I mentioned it a moment ago, but one of my absolute favorite Rolling Stones songs is Midnight Rambler. Right. It's about a guy who creeps in to a wind, lady's window, rapes her and stabs her. <laughs> right. It's an amazing blues song. <laughs> yeah. So it seems, it seems to me that uh, if, if Gort's right, and I, I must admit I'm, I'm somewhat sympathetic to him, you, you should feel at least a little bad about, uh, singing along to Midnight Rambler. Now, of course, this is to go back again to the issue we started with. Midnight Rambler is not just those words, right? It's also that music. And so you might think, well, look, part of the reason I love singing along to it is it's a great blues song, right? So it's got a great melody. It's got a great kind of, um, you know, rhythm and the instrumentation, everything, um, the way it's put together in the studio. Uh, and so you might sort of think of a counterfactual situation, right? If you could actually write some alternate words that weren't kind of awful and misogynistic. <laughs> but and kind then of sing, it wouldn't be the same song, it would wouldn't, it? It wouldn't be the same song, but... Bear, it wouldn't be as dangerous. Right. So Beerus Gort would say it wouldn't be the same song and it might potentially be a better song. Now, it might not because maybe you just can't rewrite the song with different words. It's just, it's just never going to work. Um, I'm going to bake you a cake. Right, right, right. So so he wants to say at least, well, look, it's insofar as it's misogynistic, it's a bad song. But that's not to say just it's a bad song, period, right? Because it's got all of these other amazing features. And what our overall assessment of the song is going to be is is a difficult question. But you can't just look at the lyrics. You've got to look at the, kind of the whole package. But you're exactly right. Contextualists um, 
as opposed to ethicists, so the people that, that Gort's arguing against, are going to say, look, sometimes eliciting morally inappropriate responses is a really good thing and an important value of art. So Anne Eaton, another great philosopher, uh, has a piece I just taught actually uh, about Elmodovar's film Talk to Her. Mm-hmm. So that's a film with a, a crucial um, crucial to the story is a, is a rape. Um, it's it's a nurse who rapes a comatose patient, but the rape is presented in the film very orthogonally. You don't see any of it. It's 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 this weird thing actually, where there's this kind of um, fictional silent movie within the movie that you kind of see instead. And it, it's you know, it, the idea it, is presented right. The yeah. idea is presented. You you've got to understand that's what's going on. But the the rapist Benigno, the nurse, is presented as a very sympathetic character, and Anne Eaton thinks that the conflicting emotions that Almodovar is trying to get us to feel in response to uh, Benigno, that character, um, is really morally valuable because it makes you see how easily you can um, be seduced by certain kind of character traits into kind of thinking that, well, maybe the sexual assault or whatever it is, it wasn't so bad. And then you realize, wait, what am I thinking here? This is, this is awful. Um, Gort's response is sort of like, well, look, if, if Elmodovar is ultimately saying, look, you ought to be horrified at yourself for having these sympathetic responses, then basically the movie is trying to get a moral response, and that's a well-justified moral response. So he thinks ultimately those sorts of examples um, uh, favor ethicism. He, he thinks, yeah, if you're ultimately horrified by Midnight Rambler, and that's what the Stones want you to be, uh, then it's it's an ethically good work of art, and it doesn't have any uh, aesthetic or artistic flaws because of its moral problems. I suspect that's not the case with Midnight Rambler, right? I suspect it is a morally problematic song. Um, and Oh, I'll admit it. And yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think maybe we should feel a little bit icky um, yeah. singing along to it. Well, in the time we have left here, I wanted to um, uh, get to one other aspect of your of your writing and, and thought process. Um, and again, we go to the Stones here when we talk about this, um, as well as several other artists. And this comes up with the idea of authenticity in music and uh, something that has been very, very uh, talk, much talked about over the past five to eight years, and that is the idea of cultural appropriation of uh, other sounds into your own music. Now, the Stones were very famous in that uh, by presenting uh, blues music and playing blues music as white British blues artists, they were very much, um, they would, I mean, they brought Muddy Waters on tour with them so that right. they could present him to the white American audiences and say, here's where it all came from. Right. But then you have other artists, um, you know, the both modern, uh, say Justin Timberlake, you know, or uh, in the past, perhaps Elvis Presley, who mm-hmm. maybe weren't as forthright about their acknowledgments of here's where my sounds came from. Mm. And so this whole idea of cultural appropriation and authenticity of music that you write about. Talk, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, that's, of course, a huge um, topic. Uh, and I think ultimately the, the sort of... Um, dichotomy or, or it's probably more of a continuum or a spectrum that, that you mapped out there is is the right one. Uh, some people have tried to argue that you know any kind of appropriation is inappropriate. That, for instance, um, what the Stones did was wrong uh, and they should not have been playing music that was not theirs. You know, so the blues is a kind of black cultural um, practice and it's not for white people to um, to do. I think it's actually very difficult to defend such a hard line at the end of the day. And I think ultimately what's um, going on. Because musicians have been stealing from each other for hundreds and thousands of years. Well, 
that might be the case. I mean, if they're actually stealing, it seems like that's no uh, that's no excuse, right? I mean, if all your friends friends are jumped off the bridge, as my mother used to say, you know, would you too? Doesn't make it right. So. If musicians really have been stealing all those years, maybe there's you know a lot of problems with that. I mean, some people have raised the same sorts of questions um, within philosophy, kind of interestingly enough, about um, you know people like Mozart taking the the kind of Turkish band sound yeah. and putting it into his music as a kind of problematic cultural appropriation for just the sorts of reasons you were talking about, right? It sort of decontextualizes it. It's supposed it sort of exoticizes it, and people don't really understand the music. Somewhere it's supposed to sound kind of like funny and weird, um, rather than being a kind of way of of kind of understanding that other musical culture and the other culture as a whole. Um, so it's more, it's something more, I think for me about the, the value of development of the arts. I mean, it seems like nobody wants a kind of musical culture or any other kind of culture that's just like static and mm-hmm. where it sort of becomes a, a, a museum piece. And, and so again, yeah, there are lots of people who, who you think, I, I think Muddy Waters was one of them was like, you know, um, Thank God these people were kind of learning the blues, these these, you know, white British boys, because, you know, African American people weren't weren't taking it up. And so they've continued the tradition. So I think ultimately those sorts of arguments um, can be used to justify cultural appropriation in a in a neutral sense. <laughs> I don't think that's always necessarily a bad word. But I think ultimately what's really important is the stuff you're saying about kind of acknowledging where the stuff is coming from making sure um, it's not part of a kind of a larger system of, of oppression um, and, and acknowledging, acknowledging debts. So I think, yeah, the, the like um, when, the, when the talking heads re, uh, come out with re, remain in light, they say, if you want to understand our music, listen to Fela Kuti. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, I think, I mean, in fact, I think although this was a controversial example, the, the Paul Simon Graceland thing was a, was an yeah, interesting example. Sure. I mean, I think he really did, do his best to kind of you know uh, you know integrate himself into that musical culture and really make sure people were were being fairly treated and that kind of thing. Bring as you say, bring people on stage with them. I think Ladysmith, Black Mambazo, and and other groups um, have been um, appreciative of that and and have a, have a pretty nuanced view of what was going on there. So I think there's also a danger in these kind of like um, sort of knee jerk reactions. Oh, that's cultural appropriation that should never happen. Uh, sometimes a little bit patronising um, and paternalistic towards. Uh, other cultures, which you know, the cultures that are being appropriated from, which is again, I think, partly a, a virtuous response, but partly can be part of that that oppressive relationship, thinking that people aren't in control of their own, you know, can't, need to be helped with defending their own cultures. I mean, I think sometimes there's there's a role for that, but we've got to acknowledge that sometimes you know people want to open up their cultures to other people. Um, so just that basic notion of kind of moral deference is sometimes a term that's used. You know, just basically respecting the other culture um, that's easy to say and often hard to do in practice but at the end of the day I think that's what's got to underlie um, the morally acceptable appropriation of other people's cultures Andrew Kania thank you so much I appreciate it thanks Nathan it's been great talking with you thanks for listening to the Learning Together podcast I'm Nathan Cohn today's episode was recorded and produced by Trinity University's KRTU radio station for the Office of Alumni Relations and Development New podcasts will be released on the last Friday of each month. For more information about our Learning Together podcast series or to suggest a topic for a future episode, please email us at alumnipodcast at trinity.edu.